Our topic this week, springboarding from Genesis chapter 19, we're looking at text literally throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah, an example of hell. So needless to say, it's going to be a hot topic. So we're going to see what the Bible says about hell and when it will be, where it will be, how hot it will be, how long it will be, and what will be the end results. So in Genesis 19, verse 24, it says, The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So fire came down, fire and brimstone. Burns up the entire place, everything, including the surrounding fields. And annihilates it all. In Jude chapter 7, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the stories we've been reading over the last few weeks regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, and a little bit more moving forward in the next few weeks about these chapters in this area of the Bible. It says here that, that Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole experience, is an example of eternal fire. So if we want to understand what eternal fire is, what, the, what hell is like, we can look at what the Bible describes happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will give us a good example of it. Now it says here they are set forth, and they are set forth, and I believe that this area where we're standing right there, those people are standing right there, is the spot of either Sodom or Gomorrah. You see in the background the dark brown or the tannish uh, mountains, all of Israel is these tannish and rocky outcrops literally everywhere in different colors, different shades. There are some light color rocks, but it's just rocks everywhere. Lots of different kinds of rocks made from different materials, but it's all rocks, just everywhere rocks, except in these few little spots of maybe several hundred acres of land where it's nothing but this white powder. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So Peter, just like Jude, says that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example. Both of them use that same phrase. They are an example to us, set forth, making them an example. And the Bible says that the cities were on the plains of the Valley of Sidom. What was the Valley of Sidom is now the Dead Sea. And the plains of the Dead Sea is where the cities were. Uh, we saw, in, again, previous texts, it said that, that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah went out of the cities and into the plain of Sidom in order to fight a war that was taking place there. And so the cities were not in the valley. They are not under the Dead Sea. They are on the plains of what is now the Dead Sea. And that's exactly where these, where these spots are. And so even in Peter's day, Jude's day, they would be able to go down there and see the example. It's made as an example, left as an example for people to see what would be the end result of 
disobedience to God, rejecting the mercies of God, the multiple mercies that was poured out upon them. We saw them in, a few, in past weeks of how many times God gave opportunity and opportunity to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are set forth as an example of those who reject the invitation of God, the mercies of God, the love of God, turning them into ashes, burning them up, destruction. So there again, it tells us a little bit as an example of what hell will be like, turning them into ashes and destruction. I mean, other than us modern people there in our modern clothing there, do you see any other people there? Do you see any people from the inhabitants of Gomorrah or Sodom there? Do you see any, any buildings there, any remains there? Anything living there? No, it's nothing, right? It's just ashes. They are set forth as an example of what the destruction will be like. And so again, here's that outcrop, uh, just one of the areas, and a little bit closer view, and again, the contrast of the white with the tan dark background, no real rocks in this area, rocks everywhere else. Here again, a little closer up, and you can kind of see some of that layering and this sand and so uh, this, this ashy powder, I brought some of it home. So if uh, anyone wants to feel it, they get real powdery, real messy, uh, right on your fingers, and you'll be able to see how crumbly it is. And yeah, a little video here uh, of, uh, to kind of see the layers. So it's kind of like layers, if you can think of a thick book that just smoldered, and just the layers of the papers that would be there. That's kind of what it looks like and feels like. And so again, you can see the clear layers there and how it just becomes just, just uh, brittle and just uh, talcum powdery, just ashy and just messing up my fingers there just very, very quickly. And just soft and uh, again, just soft ash type of thing everywhere. And so in that area, we did find some little pebbles and uh, we took one of them and laid it on a little rock I guess it's kind of a pebble too, right? So, so the kind of a, I don't know, heart-shaped or oblong little rock, right? So this is just a rock, and that's just a rock that probably washed down into the area. And so we took this little piece of fragment, little uh, kind of a crystal type thing, and put it on top of the rock, and then used just a little lighter and lit that little pebble uh, on fire. And you'll see here the video where it just literally just kind of melts right before our eyes. It just burns a little bit, kind of melts, a little bit of a flame, hard to see in the video. And it mostly melts down, bubbles, gets so hot it starts to bubble and melt. Um, and John is here. Uh, we, I was showing this bag to, to him and, and, and Carol's husband, Rick, um, for one of the trips. And not this particular bag, another bag that I brought back. and. Um, Rick put his hand in there and felt the, the ash and one of those pebbles fell out. And so we, right here behind the synagogue, we took a, a spoon from the schmooze room and we, uh, we lit it and it smelled up, burned up, melted down, pitted the, the spoon. And so we'll see it here as well. Oh, there's a, just the lighter, here's the video coming up. You can see it there, the colors of the yellow and the red uh, that wasn't there originally, that's from the burning. There we go. You can see it turning colors, melting, bubbling, and just melting away. Bubbling up, and then just melting away. 
You try that in your backyard with a little pebble you find. Right? Just take a lighter and just light it to it. Uh, it won't work, right? And, uh, and Brenda was there last year and saw that actual demonstration right there in the Dead Sea and others uh, from here. Linda and Barbara have seen it as well. Come with us. And you can come with us next year. We've got some brochures here, and you can come to Sodom and uh, see some of those ashes and, uh, and burn that as well. So that's what it's come down. That's what happens. as sulfur. And then as we pick this up, when we pass it around, you smell it, very strong smell of sulfur, right? Right? Would you testify that, right? right? Some people, we say, oh, sniff this. I say, inhale it. I just, just smell it. And uh, yeah, it's a very strong smell of the, these rotten egg sulfur brimstone that is present there. That's so much brimstone in that concentrate that it just with a lighter uh, lights on fire and melts away. And so you have the combination of the location matching right up with the Bible, the description that it would become ashes and burned up, just as the Bible describes, out on the plains of the Dead Sea and that uh, they would be um, brimstone. And so all those come together. I firmly believe that, uh, that this is the location. And they're set forth as a great example of what the eternal fires will be like, what the uh, destruction of the wicked will be like. So how will the wicked be like Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we've seen a little bit already that they would be destroyed, that they would be ashes, that they would be burned up from heaven, fire coming down and burning them up. So let's look at some more Bible texts. Psalm 11, verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone. A burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Once again, already some of the text we see matching right up. Uh, Psalmist is not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah in the past. He's talking in the future that there will be fire. It will rain fire and brimstone, just like we read about Sodom and Gomorrah. And they will be destroyed, just like we read it said uh, in Peter that they were destroyed, destroying them, and they've been blotted out. Psalm 21, verse 9. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. Psalm 37.10, in a little while, the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look for his place, but it shall be no more. And again, any of the homes of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are no more. And we go to a lot of sites in Israel, even back to Abraham's day, and we can see gateways of cities, entrances of cities. We can see out, uh, uh, outlines of rooms and storehouses and buildings, uh, again, in Beersheba and up in Dan, that go all the way back thousands of years. And so we can see the homes, the places of that, those people. But you go and look for a house of Sodom, you go for a look for a house of Gomorrah, it is no more. The place of the wicked is no more, and the wicked shall be no more. The fire has devoured them. Psalm 119, verse 10. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Psalm 145, verse 20. 
The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So all the wicked will be destroyed. They will melt away, just like we saw that little pebble from Sodom. It melted right before our eyes, and it melted away. I couldn't bring the remnants of it back here for you to see. It melted away. We just had it there until it just it was gone. It just melted away. Now you burn a piece of wood, right? Usually you have like even a charred piece of it left. There's nothing left. It just melted very quickly. And a piece of wood would take a while. This melted away. Just right before our eyes. Zephaniah verse, chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the great day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. So we're talking about the day of the Lord, and we're seeing uh, these texts, they're talking future tense, I will, right, it shall be, I will utterly consume, right, we saw devoured, right, consume, devoured, similar words, everything, use the same words several times over and over again, it's the great day of the Lord, it's coming, amen, God will deal with those who deal unjustly, those who cause suffering and pain on this earth, those who cause heartache, those who have rejected the Lord, those who are hurting themselves. And again, all of us at one time were. That's why we need to be born again to not experience this fate. This is not the desire for God for anyone, but he will do what he needs to do. And the Lord is coming soon. Zephaniah chapter 1, same chapter, now in verse 17. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. And so Sodom and Gomorrah, as an example, says here they would make a speedy rid riddance. Abraham went over to the area where he prayed for them with the Lord, that there would be 50, that there would be 40, that there would be even 10 people there. God would spare it. Abraham went the next morning, and he just saw the smoke ascending from the flames that had come down, the fire that had come down, and that destroyed the cities, the plains, and the inhabitants thereof, devouring them with fire. So it'll be quick, it'll be speedy, it'll be over, just like we saw that rock melt away speedily, and it will be in the day of the Lord's wrath, because they have chosen to continue to sin against the Lord, even though opportunity and opportunity have been given to them. So some of the words we've seen already, no more, destroyed, devoured, blotted out, melt away, perish, utterly consumed, speedy riddance. And some of those words were used several times over several different verses. Pretty plain words, pretty clear words, giving us a clear description of what it was like in Sodom and Gomorrah, a very clear description 
of what it will be like for the wicked in their final destruction. So when will it be? Well, we've seen some text already on this. Let's look at a few others. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's from Matthew chapter 11, verse 24. So it shall be, what tense is that? Future tense, right? So in the future, as we've seen these texts mentioning, it shall be, it will be in that day, in the day of judgment. So it will be in the day of judgment that God destroys the wicked, melts them, burns them up, consumes them, destroys them in the day of judgment, the final day of judgment. It shall be. And then Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, similarly it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. The day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Branch got cut off there, but should finish the, the verse there. Neither root nor branch. Branch. So in the future, the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment, the great day of the Lord Almighty, the day of his wrath, in the future, he will do this. He will burn them up. Proud, the wicked, they reject God's grace. They will be stubble, leaving neither root nor branch. Now this picture here is a picture from a friend of mine, a, uh, an area of forest that he, uh, that he works at and maintains. Uh, leases out for his cattle, and a fire came through the forest, and, and some of the areas of the forest grew back very uh, dense within a year or so, uh, two years max. Um, but this area is several years later, and you see the ground is still just rocks. Nothing has grown there since the fire. And again, often fires will help growth uh, because it'll burn up all the branches, all the twigs, all the leaves, all the pine needles that have been built up there and keep any seeds from getting into the ground. Uh, burns off the leaves on the trees so that sunlight can now get in, rain can get in there and stir up a whole lot of growth uh, that will often take place. There are some seeds that don't uh, germinate until a fire opens up the cones of the pines. Uh, but this area, it was so hot that it burned all that was underneath it. And it must have been a lot of brush there and a lot of needles there, pine needles there, to burn it this hot, but you see there's nothing there now. There's no branches, there's no down trees laying there. there. It all burned, all that fuel made it so hot that the soil deep down into the soil burned, all the seeds in the soil burned, all the microorganisms that would allow uh, plants to come back uh, burned, all the topsoil just burned away. So it was very, very hot. Probably about as hot as a natural fire could possibly be. Yet even as hot as, as hot as that was, and years later, still nothing growing there, what do you see in the picture? Some tree trunks, and on those tree trunks, a few branches. And if there's branches and tree trunks, then what other part of the tree must be there? The roots. But God is describing here, Malachi is describing a fire that is going to be so hot that there'll be no branches and there won't even be any roots left. Probably hotter than anything Malachi ever saw, naturally. But the fire and the brimstone and God's destruction can destroy it all 
He's saying that it's going to be hotter than anything natural, anything you can imagine. And that's exactly what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing but ashes. They're left to this day, thousands of years later. That's how hot God's judgment will be. And so where will it be? Where will hell be? Is it in the center of the earth? Is it some designated spot out there in the universe somewhere? Where should we go to find out? What do you think? The Bible. That's a great idea. How about that? Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's look in the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about where it will be. The Bible's pretty plain about this topic. Ezekiel 29, uh, 28, 28, verse 16. You sinned, is referring to the devil himself, you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub. I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, you have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So describing Lucifer, describing Satan, the devil, he will be destroyed. It will be fire that destroys him. He will be devoured. Same words we saw for Sodom and Gomorrah. Same words we saw for the rest of the wicked. And he will be ashes upon the earth. A lot of artists like to depict Satan in hell with a pitchfork and in charge of it and ruling over it, and, and poking people, and hurting people, and pushing them over into closer to the flames. That's not how the Bible describes it. That might be what Satan would like. He'd like to be in charge of something. He'd like to be causing pain and misery. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he will be destroyed, that he will be devoured by the fire, that he will become ashes, and not deep down under the earth somewhere, not on some other planet somewhere. The Bible says he will be destroyed and become ashes on the earth. And then he will be no more forever. He likes to think he's going to be around causing more pain forever and ever. But the Bible says he will be no more forever, just as it describes the wicked. He will be ashes on the earth. Let's look at some more text. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 and 12. The heavens and the earth are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Again, a lot of the same exact words we've seen in a lot of other texts. Talking about the earth, that it's reserved for fire. God's holding it in place. He's keeping it in store. And for fire against the day of judgment. We've seen that phrase before, referring to the final day of destruction of the wicked. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of his coming, the day of God. 
and the heavens and the earth will be on fire and shall be dissolved. We've seen that word used over and over again. And the elements shall melt. We've seen that word used again before with fervent heat. Clear descriptions in lots of places in the Bible saying relatively the same thing over and over and over again. Let's look at some more text. Revelation 20, so we've been from Genesis to Revelation, and many stops in between. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So the wicked will be raised in the second resurrection. That's a whole big topic in itself. And the new Jerusalem will come down from God out of heaven and will descend and land on the earth. And then when the wicked are raised in that second resurrection, they go up on the breath of the earth. They surround the camp of the, city, the, camp of the saints, the beloved city, the new Jerusalem. And what happens to them? That's Revelation 20, verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Still, Revelation 20, verse 9. This is we read in those other verses. Fire and brimstone coming down from heaven, devouring them, burning them up. And they were, where were they? On the earth. They went up on the breath of the earth, surrounded the city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them on the earth. And who is with them? Who's leading the charge with them? Satan himself. And as we already read in Ezekiel about him, that he will be burned up and devoured, just like the same words here in Revelation. In the same chapter, a few verses later, Revelation 20, verse 14, this is the second death. All right, so the wicked died already. Many have already died since Cain down through the ages. And those who uh, have not died yet will uh, die at the brightness of his coming, at the Lord's second coming, and then there will be a time period, it's a whole other topic in itself, and then there will be a second resurrection, the resurrection of damnation, the resurrection of the wicked, and so they live a second life in order to die a second death. And that is the second death where they will be devoured, where they will be burned up, where they will be consumed by the fire that comes down from God out of heaven and burns them up on the earth. <clears throat> Still the same chapter, Revelation 20, the next verse. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So where is the lake of fire? This earth. This earth becomes this big ball, a lake of fire. This is God destroyed this earth with water one time and it became a big lake. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah was a mini pond of fire, this whole earth becomes this lake of fire. That's what the verse 9 said. They came up on the breath of the earth, fire came down on the earth, devoured them, creating this lake of fire that devours them and destroys them quickly, turning them to ashes for making a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what here it says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet 
on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. On the day, the day of judgment, the day of God, the great day of the Lord, on that day, God will turn them to ashes. That God will, after he destroys the wicked, he will open the gates of the new Jerusalem. We'll be able to, he'll create the new heavens and the new earth out of those ashes, great fertilizer. And then we will walk out on that grass and on the base of that grass, the wicked's ashes will be there. And just as we're able to walk on their ashes today down in Sodom, they will be ashes under the soles of our feet. Just as it described will be the end result for Satan, that he will be ashes on the earth, the wicked will be ashes on the earth and will be no more forever. So how thoroughly will they be burned up? How thoroughly is this fire? How hot is this fire? Isaiah 10, verse 17, the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. It will consume both soul and body. That's pretty hot. It's like neither root nor branch. Burns, devours one day quickly, burns them up, whether a literal day or just a symbolic day there, but relatively quickly, we'll burn them up, we'll devour them, we'll consume them. Again, we're seeing these same phrases, these same clear words used over and over and over and over again. Right? If you consume something, if you devour something, right, how much is left? If someone consumed the, the, you know, whatever, the pie or whatever, right? It is gone, right? It is no more. Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is Yeshua referring to here? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul? Who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul? What's that? Humans, right. Humans kill bodies all the time, right? But they cannot kill your soul, right? So they can kill us, but without our choice, they cannot kill the soul. They can burn us at the stake. They can pull us apart on the rack. They can feed us to the lions. It doesn't matter. They can kill this body. This body doesn't matter. They can kill this body, but they can't touch our soul without our permission. But, rather, though they're controlled by the devil, right? So he's the devil. He can kill us, but he can't touch our soul without our permission. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is Yeshua referring to there? Who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? God. Exactly. God will destroy both soul and body in hell. It's a lot hotter than most people think. A lot of people think it just causes a lot of pain. It's not for causing pain. It's for destroying both soul and body in hell destroys them, burns them up completely, consumes them quickly 
soul and body. That's root and branch. Right? When Malachi wrote, there was neither root nor branch. You think he cares about trees? You think it's about trees that he's talking about? I mean, literally, it's about trees, but he's talking symbolically. It'll be so complete, it'll be so thorough, it'll be body and soul, in other words. Completely. And God's not coming to destroy the trees. Right? Not about the trees. The trees haven't sinned. It's coming to destroy wickedness. He destroys it completely, once and for all. And the devil wants us to think that he's there causing pain continually, and that God is approving it, and that God is allowing it, and that God is encouraging it. But that's not how the Bible describes it. Right? We've looked at a bunch of texts already. We're not even done yet. We haven't seen anything that's just going to be pain and going on and on. But this devouring, consuming soul and body totally destroyed. Very, very hot. Much hotter than we can imagine. Psalm 37, verse 20, the wicked shall perish, the enemies of the Lord shall vanish, into smoke they shall vanish away. Psalm 52, verse 3 and 5, you love evil more than good, lying rather than righteousness, God will destroy you forever and uproot you from the land of the living. If they're no longer in the land of the living, then where would they be? What other land is there? There's the land of the living and there's the land of the, the dead. <laughs> right? That's the only other option, right? Because if they're living anywhere else, you can say they're living on Pluto. Well, they're still living then. It's the land of the living. Right? If they're alive, then wherever they would be, it's still a land of the living. But they're not in the land of the living. They are dead. They are destroyed forever. Into smoke, they vanish. Vanish away. Perish. Again, yeah, very clear words. I mean, this is a pretty clear text, very popular text. Romans 6, 28. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Yeshua the Messiah. So what is the alternative to eternal life? Death. It doesn't say the wages of sin is eternal life into a really bad place where you're going to be in pain for a long period of time. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, and the gift of God is eternal life in a very nice place where you'll be happy all the time. It just makes the contrast between death and eternal life. And that's really the only two choices. That's all there is. Very clear Bible text. How about an even clearer one? How about even a more popular one? So popular that uh, Julio has it wearing on his shirt today. <laughs> John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. So again, the contrast there is everlasting life or death, perishing. Right? That's the contrast. Again, it doesn't say that they should not have everlasting life in a very painful place, but should have everlasting life in a very nice place. It's the choices, perishing or eternal life. That's the two options. The Bible's very clear on this. 
God doesn't want any should perish. He doesn't want that any be destroyed. He doesn't want that any be consumed. He doesn't want that any of his children be no more forever. But he's also so loving that he knows he can't allow it to continue. And so he sent forth his son for the sins of the world that whosoever, no matter how wicked, no matter how degraded, no matter how far from God, and again, that's where all of us were, all born separated from God, all born under sin, all born as the chief of sinners, all born with a carnal nature, all born with an enmity towards God, a resistance to prayer, a resistance to his word, a resistance to truth. Again, God changes the hearts of those who yield to him, those who surrender to him, those who choose the path of everlasting life and accept the son, accept his sacrifice in their behalf and die to self, allow the carnal nature to be buried in him, to be removed from us, to be changed, to be transformed, that the natural inclinations towards evil are removed by the blood of the Messiah. He took, takes our sins into himself. He takes our punishment, that second death, he takes it into himself. He takes our bent towards evil, our natural inclination towards evil, and he removes it from us, and he put it into himself. And that's what killed him. And then in place of it, he puts a new heart a new mind, new life, new desires, new thoughts. And everlasting life begins here and now. The change begins here and now, moment by moment, step by step, day by day. Little by little, as we surrender more and more to him, confess our sins, he cleanses and washes them away, removes them from us, delivers us from us, delivers us from them. And then fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we have victory over temptation. That we're able to say no to sin and no to the wrong. It changes our desires. Changes our interest. Gives us love for him. Love for others. A love for his word. A love for prayer. And he changes us. It's him doing it. Not us. We're all on the path to hell without the Lord. And he doesn't want any to go there, so he sent his son to save us, to divert us, to give us opportunity, just as he did for Sodom, allowing Lot to go down there, having Abraham deliver them, sending two angels down there, Abraham praying and interceding for them. God in his mercy doesn't want that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. But at the same time, he won't be mocked. At the same time, he cannot allow it to continue forever. He cannot allow sin to destroy the universe. He cannot give it eternal life. Any more than anyone who loves understands this. If you raise, let's say, even an animal, let's say, even a dog, 
Right? Even a dog, right? <laughs> so if you raise a dog, a dog from a puppy, you got it as a puppy, maybe day one old, you know, maybe you had the mother and birth to participate in the birth. You're there and you raise that puppy. Potty trained it and, and fed it and took it for walks, enjoyed playing with it, raised your kids with it. Kids love the dog. Come home, they love to play with the dog, go on the backyard and play with the dog. Take the dog to parks and various places. And you love the dog, you enjoy the dog. You even let the thing lick your face, right? After it licked other things, right? You let it lick your face, right? You love this dog, right? Yeah. Uh, and then one day the dog's out in the backyard and it gets in a fight with a raccoon. And it gets rabies. And after a while you notice it starts foaming at the mouth, it starts acting crazy, starts acting unusual, starts nipping at the kids. And you test it and you find out it has rabies. What would be the loving thing to do? Put him down. I put him to sleep. Take him to the vet. Put him to sleep. That's the loving thing to do. Loving for the, your kids? Right? Would you allow him to continue around your kids? Around neighbors' pets and neighbors' kids? And loving thing to do for the animal, for the dog. You wouldn't put it in a cage, would you? Would you put it in a cage? And let it stay there as rabid and hitting its head against the cage and running back and forth in the little cage and banging itself up and biting itself and scratching itself and foaming at the mouth and rolling around? It, it, that, would that be the loving thing to do? To keep it alive in that state? And yet people think that's what God's going to do for the wicked. Would you then take him in that crate? Leave him in that crate? and set the crate up on, on, on pillars, and then put a fire under that pay, uh, uh, crate, and heat up the metal of that crate so he's in pain and he's burning, and he goes against the crate and he burns his skin here, and he goes over to the other side of the crate and he burns himself there? And his feet are getting all singed? Is that what you would do? Would that be the loving thing to do? Who do you think paints a picture of God that way? Are we seeing that in the Bible? We've looked at a lot of texts. Have we seen that yet? Who paints a picture of God that way? Who do you think invented that view of God? The devil. The devil paints God as a tyrant, as a madman. And he depicts himself as being in charge of hell. And the flame's not affecting him. But that's not what we're seeing in the Bible. Now, God is loving and merciful, even to the wicked. We'll let them to continue for thousands and billions and billions and billions and billions of years, zillions or whatever is higher than zillions of years, for 80, 90 years of sin. It wouldn't be just, would it? No, as we're seeing these texts, he'll devour them. Speedy riddance will be no more forever. Burn them up, make them ashes.
There are many who have rejected God because they've been taught a horrible view, a horrible picture of a God who will cause suffering and pain. And there are people who know people who won't be in heaven because of their lifestyles, and they know in their heart they won't be in heaven. And then they think that God is torturing them and will continue to torture them for zillions of years. And they say, I can't believe in a God like that. And they shouldn't believe in a God like that because that's not the God of the Bible. So some of the words we've seen over and over again, ashes upon the earth, no more forever, destroyed, devoured, surely die, blot out, blotted out, perish, vanish, death, melt away, utterly consumed, speedy riddance, both soul and body. Right? We've seen this, almost all these words more than once. Several, uh, several of them several times. And very clear words, very plain words. These are not hard to many words, right? You don't need a dictionary for any of these words. I can even spell most of these words. Hey, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. Now, as you look at all of those words, any one of those words, so they match up with the picture. The people being alive and being in torture and being in pain and living on. Now, how one of those words? Destroyed, devoured, surely die, blotted out, perish, vanish. None of those match up with that picture. Ashes on the earth, melted away, utterly consumed, speedy riddance. That's how the Bible describes. As we've looked at, what, 30, 40 texts of what God will do to the wicked, out of love. For them and for all the rest of the created beings of heaven. Because they wouldn't be happy. They wouldn't be happy if God kept them alive in hell. And God wouldn't, they wouldn't be happy if God forced them to be in heaven. We, when we were in our carnal state and our resistance toward God and our natural enmity towards God, if God forced us to be in heaven, we wouldn't be happy there. It wouldn't be the heavenly bliss. So why would a loving God burn sinners in hell for millions of years? He wouldn't. That's the easy answer to that. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. He's not taking pleasure in it any more than you would take pleasure in taking your puppy or your dog down to the vet to have to put him to sleep. But yet he still knows he needs to do it. Isaiah 28, verse 21, the Lord will rise up. He will be angry that he may do his work, his strange work, his unusual act. Do not be mocked. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined upon the whole earth. So again, he will destroy this earth. It's his unusual act. It's not what he desires. It's his strange work. But it's work that has to be done. And he's the only one who can do it. And so he does it and he gets it over with. So what about... Oh, we'll look at 40 or 50 texts. <laughs> very clear text, very plain words, and people go, oh, but, 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 but what about uh, this? Okay, so that's all right. Let's look at the other Bible texts. There are a few, few, very few, and especially in comparison to how many we've seen that seem to sound like they say just the opposite. So let's see what they actually say and what they actually mean 
in light of all these other texts. That's how you study the Bible. You look at a topic, you get all the Bible texts on it, pile them together, all that say very, pretty much exactly the same thing, and usually it's a vast majority of that way, and then there's always a few that seem to say something other, and then you take those and you understand them in light of the group, the large group, the plain group, the clear group. You don't take the few and then twist them and run with those. Well, that's what often happens. So let's take a look at these other texts. The rich man, right? the parable of the rich man. So let's take a look at that. And that's a good one, it's an important parable. If it's literal, as some would want us to believe, that, that it's not a parable, that Yeshua is describing a literal event that's taking place. Well, if it's literal, then Abraham's bosom must be very large. Because in the parable it says that the rich man dies and the Lazarus, poor beggar, dies and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. So if all the righteous go to Abraham's bosom, well, then he's got to have a very large chest, right? He's got to be a big-chested man for everyone to go and be hugged by him. So again, right off we see it's not literal. There's symbolism going on here right from the get-go. Secondly, People in heaven can see and have conversations with those in hell. If it's literal, that's what happens in the parable. The rich man and Abraham begin having a conversation together. And so if it's literal, then that's going to happen. I don't think you'd like that. And third, souls have fingers, eyes, and tongues. Because in the parable... So it says, dip your finger, let him dip his finger in some water and touch my tongue to release my suffering. And they see each other. So again, if it's literal, then that's how we have to interpret it. But it's not, it's a parable. And it has important significance. And let's look at what these important, several important things that that parable is God was wanting to teach us regarding that story. I guess before we go there, so if it's literal, then this is what it will be like in heaven. Say we're all there, we're all gathered together one afternoon, and uh, an angel comes up to us and says, how would you guys like to go on a road trip? We go, wow, fun, let's go. Right? And so we put on our wings, and we go floating away, and we're cruising through galaxies, one galaxy after another. We're passing planets. We're visiting all these other places. We're seeing created beings that... We didn't know it existed, that God has created, and, and he's introducing us to angels and seraphim and cherubim and who knows, whatever else is out there. We're seeing colors beyond our imagination. Our eyes are so much better now, and we're getting so much closer up, and we're seeing these nebulas and all this stuff, and it's just absolutely amazing. Shapes, colors, and sounds, it's just beautiful. And we're going several, we've covered several galaxies, and we're zooming along, and we're between galaxies, and then all of a sudden, one of us says, hold on, everyone, stop, everyone. And so we all stop there, and we're just kind of hovering there in space. And uh, he says, take a sniff. Smell something. I smell something. I also sniff it. What is that? I, re I, I can recognize that. What is that? Oh, it's smoke. I remember now. That's what the smell of smoke is like. I smell some smoke. Go, oh, yeah. And we all go, yeah, 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 that's what it is. It's smoke. And then after a couple seconds, you hear the voice 
of someone you loved, someone you knew, someone who was very close to you, who chose and rejected the love of God. And they call you by name. They call out your name. A special name that, that they had, just you and them know, or just kind of a nickname that you had. They call you out. And they say, wow, it's so hot down here. Oh, I'm in so much pain. Please, please, can you just give me a little bit of water? I touch my tongue and just relieve my suffering a little bit. So maybe think of someone. Think of someone who's already passed. But for all intensive purposes outwardly, you don't think they're going to be in heaven. And you hear them calling your name. And so what would you do? You reach, you get your little water bottle, your little water sack or whatever it will be, right? This gold thing or whatever maybe, right? And you dip your finger in it. And then the angel says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 you can't share anything with them. They can't come join us here. You can't go over there. You can't give them anything. Just forget it. Put the cap on. Let's go. We got another couple galaxies to go see. And we just go zoom in. Would you enjoy the rest of the trip? To be able to enjoy the next several days? Would heaven be a happy place? Now, if that would happen once, you know, it would happen over and over again if that parable is a literal story. That's what happens in the parable. And so if that's what heaven and hell is like, then that is what heaven and hell would be like. And that would not be a happy place. But the parable is just a parable. And it's not trying to teach us the realities of heaven and hell. All those other texts taught us that. It's trying to teach us some other very important lessons. So let's take a look at what some of these lessons are. It's true meaning, rich man and Lazarus. Riches are not necessarily a sign of divine favor, right? Because in the parable, where does the rich man go? Hell. And where does Lazarus go? Yeah, heaven, Abraham's bosom, right? <laughs> so it goes to heaven, Abraham's bosom, right? But what was the disciples and most people's common thinking of that day regarding rich people? Well, well, they might not have liked him. Blessed. Blessed. Yeshua told them, it'd be harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it will be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they said, wow, if they can't make it to heaven, then who on earth could be saved? They must be blessed by God. They've got riches. That was the common thinking. It's common thinking today, too. Subconsciously or consciously. But he turns that parable, he turns that thinking all upside down with the parable. No, riches are not necessarily a sign of divine blessing. I think often riches are gained because Satan gives it to us because we sold ourselves out. Not always, obviously, but at times. So it's that riches are not necessarily a sign of blessing, divine favor. Second, there is no second chance after death. That's what clearly said. They can't come over here and you won't go there, right? So at the final judgment day, when everything is decided, it will be sealed for eternity. That's an important lesson. There's some people who tell totally, you, we'll get a second chance, we'll get another chance. No. This life is where we make our choice for the Lord, not after death. 
Miracles are not a sign of divine favor. Because the rich man says, well, if he can't give me some water, well, then at least let him go and speak to my relatives and warn them so that they also don't come to this place. So a miracle happens. Send him and go warn him. Let a miracle take place that they would see that. And miracles are not a sign of divine favor. And what was the answer? If they believe not Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. So it's not by signs and wonders that we should build our faith. It's by the word of God. Not by what people say, not what people think, not what the internet says. It's by the word of God. Now, there will be people who will have maybe a near-death experience or something, will come back and will write a book, oh, I was in hell and this is what it's like, or I was in heaven and this is what it's like. And if it contradicts what Moses and the prophets, what the Bible says, believe it not. That's what the parable is teaching. Believe Moses and the prophets, regardless miraculous events. And what was the poor man's name? Lazarus. That's interesting because there is also a literal Lazarus that sometime after Yeshua tells this parable, that Lazarus dies. That Lazarus is in the grave four days. And Yeshua goes and resurrects him from the dead. And those who didn't believe Moses and the prophets regarding the Messiah, did they believe the miracle of Lazarus being resurrected? No. What did they want to do to Lazarus? They wanted to kill him. <laughs> he died and he resurrected. Let's kill him again. As if he can't resurrect him again if he wanted to. <laughs> if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe. Even if I raise a Lazarus for you. So he puts the name Lazarus into the parable, basically foretelling what he's going to do. And as a rebuke that they still won't believe if they don't believe the Bible and the prophecies regarding the Messiah. So those are very important points that the parable was wanting us to teach, wanting to teach us, wanting us to learn and know. And we neglect those and think that it has something to do with heaven and hell. What about another text in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 43 and 44? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, the worm doesn't die. <laughs> I'm not talking about the people. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What does it mean the fire is quenched? What does it mean that it, if it's quenched? What happens if you have a thirst and your thirst is quenched? What happened to your thirst? It's gone. Why is it gone? What's that? You satisfied it, right. right. So you stopped it from... What happens if your thirst is never quenched? What happens to you if your thirst is never quenched? What will eventually happen to a person if their thirst is never quenched? They die, right? Yeah, you can't live long without water, right? Without drinking, right? So if your thirst is not quenched, it will not be quenched, then they die. The fire is not quenched, it's not put out halfway in the middle. 
right? So we showed the video of the, of the little silver ball there burning. What would have happened if we would have taken a glass and put it over that very quickly and suffocated all the air? What would have happened to the fire? It would have been extinguished, right? And so it would have been quenched. The fire would have been quenched, and I'd still have a little pebble to show you. But we didn't do that. We let it melt down, burn down, till there was nothing. And that's what's going to happen to the wicked. As we read in all those texts, they're going to melt away and vanish away because the fire will not be put out halfway. It's going to burn completely, destroy them, devour them, not quench. And there's a Bible text that goes right along with this in Jeremiah 17, verse 27. Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. The Jeremiah referring to Babylon coming and destroying literal Jeru Jerusalem. He says he's going to do it with fire and it's going to devour the palaces and it shall not be quenched. In other words, it's going to burn it down to the ground. And that's what happened. Burned it down to the ground. Fire wasn't put out. Destroyed it. Is Jerusalem still burning today? No. But it says it won't be quenched. <laughs> so if it says it won't be quenched, then uh, Mark said it won't be quenched. Mark 9 says the fire won't be quenched, so it's got to burn forever and ever. Well, here it says Jerusalem's fire of Jerusalem won't be quenched. And yet Jerusalem didn't burn for millions of years. It burned up until there was nothing more to burn, and then it went out. And it was destroyed. Revelation 14, 11. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Let's say the torment continues forever and ever. The smoke of their torment continues to ascend. You burn a fire, and when that fire goes out, and you put out that fire, the smoke goes up, and the smoke will continue to go up, even after the fire is out. Right? You take a match and you blow it out, you'll see a puff of smoke go up. Even after the fire is out, that puff of smoke will come up, and the smoke will just continue to go up. So the results of the destruction, as Abraham went over the side and he saw Sodom and Gomorrah, and he saw the smoke ascending after it was all destroyed, he saw the smoke ascending. So the results are eternal, but not the fire continuing forever and ever. Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall be glorified in his saints. So again, it gives us a timing when it's going to happen, when he's glorified in his saints, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And so we have these two texts basically saying the same thing, everlasting punishment contrasted with punished with everlasting destruction. So what is the punishment that the wicked receive? Death, as we've seen, right, from these texts. The punishment is death, yes. Everlasting punishment, and then parallel, the everlasting punishment is everlasting destruction, right. So the punishment is destruction. That's the punishment. It doesn't say that they will experience pain and suffering and 
fire burning their feet forever and ever as their punishment. No, it says their punishment is everlasting. And again, the contrast is eternal life or everlasting punishment. Yeah, it doesn't say everlasting pain in hell and happiness in heaven for eternal life. It just says eternal life. And the contrast to eternal life is death. And that's their everlasting punishment. Not punishing, punishment. The punishment is everlasting. Not the punishing. There's a difference between punishing and punishment. The punishment is destruction. And the destruction is everlasting. No second chance. Right? Again, that's what the par- one of the things the parable taught us. And that's what they're punished with at the second coming. So everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. It is everlasting destruction. And that makes sense, right? If you understand English, you understand the difference between punishment and punishing, right? Obadiah 16, and they shall be as though they had never been. I think that's very beautiful. They just won't be as if they would never been. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. Nahum 1, verse 9. They'll be destroyed, they'll vanish away, they'll be no more, and they'll be as if they never were. Millions and millions of years from now, at 70 years, 90 years, 80 years, whatever, 100 years, they'll be as if it never was. And in Revelation 21, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Uh, Amen, right? And that's what the end result is. That's the contrast. God will remove it all. Again, it doesn't say there will be no more tear, nor in their eyes. There shall be no more death. There shall be no more sorrow, no more crying except in one place. (laughs) That's not what it says. It says it will be no more. So we won't be crying. We won't be tearing anymore. We will go through the grief. We will miss them. We will sorrow for them. And then they will be as if they never were. And we'll be able to go on. They won't be calling our names every day. And there'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more pain including for them. They'll be put out of their misery. There'll be no more pain. We be removed from the universe everywhere. There won't be a little speck in God's universe where there'll be pain continuing on. That God will be giving life so that pain can continue. There'll be no more pain. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more tears anywhere. Praise the Lord. Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And how did it pass away? With fire. Became this lake of fire, burned up, it all burned up, the concrete, the black top, the wood, the rubber tires, the the, uh, metal cars, all the junk, all the garbage, the styrofoam cups, it all burns up melted away. 
satellite dishes, it all, it all, satellite, it all melts away. All the plastic, all the electronics, all gone. Praise the Lord, I can't wait for that. Right? Melts it all away, burns it all up, turns it to ashes. Heat's so hot, destroys it all. The metal, everything. And then out of those ashes, he creates a new heavens and new earth. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. That's God's desire. That's what he's looking for. So when, where, how hot, how long, and results? When? When he shall be glorified in his saints in the day of judgment. Not now. In the future. In the day of judgment, God will deal with them. Where? Upon the earth. How hot? Both soul and body, neither root nor branch. Hotter than anything we can imagine. How long? Everlasting destruction, no more forever. And the end results, well, some of these words we've already used, saw both soul and body destroyed, neither root nor branch, everlasting destruction, no more forever, as well as ashes under our feet, not found, melt away, destroyed, devoured, surely die, blotted out, perish, vanish, death, utterly consumed, speedy riddance, as if they had never been. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Those are the Bible's words. That's the end result. That's what will happen now. It'll be there, be on this earth. In other words, you're already there. <laughs> Just don't stay here too long, right? We want to be delivered out of here. But this place will become, that lake of fire will burn up for a short period of time, and then like Sodom and Gomorrah, will be no more. It'll be done. Be gone. And a new heavens, new earth, created out of these. So all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I didn't say you shall surely live on forever and ever, even if you eat of that tree. He says you will surely die. And what did Satan say? Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And that's the same lie he's been saying till today, thousands of years later. You don't really die. The wicked don't really die. They don't surely die. They're tortured by God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Billions and billions and billions of years. That's Satan's lie. That's not what God said. God said the punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. They would surely die. It's Satan who says, that sin is not that important. We won't truly die. So whom do we choose to believe? Will the devil and those who follow him surely die? Or will they not surely die? Whom do you believe? God said that they would become ashes under the soles of our feet on the earth. Or what the devil says, that they will not surely die. That they'll be in pain and writhing and torture, 
kept alive by God from ever and ever and ever, billions and billions, zillions of years. Which picture of God matches up with the Bible? Which picture of God is merciful, loving, yet will not clear the guilty? A God of justice, a God of fairness, a God of right, a God of truth. His mercy endureth forever, even upon the wicked, who won't allow them to continue in misery forever, but who will blot them out. Whom do you choose to believe? God or the devil? It's basically what it comes down to. And so as we prepare to pray, if you want to choose to believe God, maybe this is the first time you've looked at these Bible texts like this way. Maybe you've read the Bible before. Maybe you've read it several times and somehow missed these clear texts. Even a John 3.16, not perish, but have everlasting life. A, John, a Romans 6.28, death or everlasting life. Or all these other texts that we looked at. And now you're seeing them all together in this way. Maybe it's the first time. And you want to choose God and choose to believe God and have the picture of God changed in your mind. And see him as eternally loving and merciful, even to the wicked in hell and their destruction. It's going to take more than just seeing some Bible text. It's going to take more than just a decision on your part because, again, this lie comes from the devil. And he roots it in there and he doesn't let go of it. It's going to take the power of the Lord to break it. And so in a moment when we pray, if you want God to break your past thinking on this topic, and ask God to do that. Allow him to miraculously set you free from past lies that have maybe been there for decades. So that God's truth can settle in. Secondly, if you want to praise God, that your eyes have been opened to see him as truly loving, truly merciful, truly good, truly just. And yet at the same time, we'll deal with the wicked in a just way. Not allow them to continue on, not allow them to heaven, nor allow them to live in burning pain forever. And you want to thank him and praise him that he is that type of a God. Then the moment when we pray, you can do that. Third, maybe there's someone that you know who needs to hear this. Maybe they are rejecting God and maybe they haven't really revealed to you the real reason and maybe it's just that they cannot accept a picture of God who would do that. And you want to share that with them. Then a moment we pray, you can pray for them, that their eyes would be opened up, that they would be open and receptive to hear it, and that God would give you the words to share it. Fourth, maybe there's some sin in your life that would keep you out of heaven. God cast his covering cherub out of heaven. If he let one-third of his heavenly angels leave because they chose sin, he kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for one sin. He can't allow any of us into heaven without any known, cherished, ongoing, rebelliously held on sin in our, on our records. It will destroy heaven, destroy the peace of heaven. So let it go before you to judgment. Confess it now. Surrender it now. Give it over to the Lord. Let him forgive you. Let him take it upon himself. Let him kill it now. Let him nail it to Calvary, let him bury it in the tomb, let him remove it from you, let him set you free. 
through his sacrifice in your behalf. I'm going to fill you with his Holy Spirit and give you victory in that area of your life. Change your desires, change your actions. And so if there's even just one area, don't let that one area keep you out of heaven. And so in a moment we pray, you can surrender that. If God's bringing that to your mind, surrender it and accept his forgiveness, accept his grace, accept his love, accept his power to change you and transform you. If any of those areas apply to you, and maybe something else, maybe you still have some questions on this topic, then pray and ask God to continue to enlighten you and to make it clear and plain in your heart and mind and soul. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We're thankful for the abundance of clear words and multitude of texts that you've given us to enlighten us regarding your character. This is not so much about a topic, this is about you. Thank you that you are merciful, long-suffering. Your mercy endures forever. You care for all of your people, those who love you and those who reject you. Thank you for demonstrating how you will deal with sin, how you will deal with judgment, how you will deal with it once and for all. Thank you, Lord, for not only doing that and being that kind of a God, but for illuminating us and sharing it with us. Lord, change our minds and hearts to be in harmony with you, with harmony with your word, harmony with your truth, harmony with your teachings, and harmony with your character. Make us loving and merciful. Make us forgiving, but also not to allow sin to continue to hurt others, to call it out, to call it by its right name deal with it in our own lives and when we see it manifested in the world. Give us the ability to do that lovingly, kindly, mercifully, and truthfully. Live in us and through us. May there be nothing in us to keep us out of heaven. Continue to pour out your spirit upon us. Give us a spirit of conviction. Reveal to us our hearts. And forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And prepare us and use us in preparing others for heaven. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.